Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Governor Kemp wins support from an important group of health care leaders for his Patients First Act. Georgia's status as one of only five states with no hate crimes law could change this session. And one Republican lawmaker thinks David Ralston should step down as speaker. This is Political Rewind. Hi, Bill Liga. Thanks for being with us for today's Rewind. We've got a great panel to talk about all of the issues on our plate. AJC lead political writer Jim Galloway, of course, is with us because he's here on Mondays and Fridays. You read him in the Wednesday and Sunday uh, newspaper, and then he oversees the pol Political Insider blog at AJC.com, which and your website, we have just seen, has been completely revamped, modernized, streamlined. Take a look at it's it. It's a beauty to behold. It is absolutely wonderful. <laughs> All right. Jim, I'm glad you're here. Cesar Mitchell, the former president of the Atlanta City Council, is back with us now. He's uh, back to practicing law after uh, making a run at mayor. You know, I sometimes wonder, Cesar, as you look at all that's going on with the federal investigation of City Hall, if there's at least a little part of you that says, glad that passed me by. <laughs> Maybe on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Right. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Dr. Andra Gillespie is with us. Of course, she's a professor of political science at Emory University and the author of a brand new book on uh, President Obama. Um, and that book, we're still waiting. We can't wait till we a see it. from today. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Give us the full title. Race in the Obama Administration, Substance, Symbols, and Hope. All right, terrific. Uh, and Heath Garrett, a Republican strategist who has worked with uh, just about every major Republican figure in politics, every leader, um, Johnny Isaacson being the uh, person who I think you identify with in terms of your career most closely. I've been with him for almost 27 years in yeah. some way, shape, or another. Okay, thank you all for uh, being here today. You know, Jim, let's start um, with the story that seems to be developing through as the day goes on today. Uh, we, The AJC and Channel 2 News did an investigative uh, report late last week. It was in the newspaper on Sunday, so most people got to see it there, which suggests that Speaker Ralston has taken advantage of his work as a representative and as a speaker to help delay court cases, in some cases for people who have committed alleged major offenses, uh, violence against women, rape, whatever, um, and that by delaying the cases, uh, the, 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 a lot of times the evidence dries up, witnesses get forgetful. So that's been a big story, but the legislature has been pretty quiet about it until the last 24 hours. Right, right. Uh, uh, at the close of yesterday, I believe, you had State Representative David Clark, who's thinking about a bid for, seventh district, the, for the 7th District Congressional seat uh, filed a, a, a resolution, he's, he's a Republican by the way, uh, uh, demanding the, uh, that the Speaker resign his, his leadership post. Um, he's actually dropped a resolution now. Mm -hmm. That's an update. 
and it's got nine cosigners. Um, uh, I, I won't go over all of the names, but as I look at them, you've seen the names too. Is are there one or two that stand up as I, I, having I would, real significance? I would say Scott Turner of Holly Springs and Jeff Jones. Uh, they 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 have got uh, significant legislation moving this year. Okay, um, this is a this is a big story. Um, Andra, uh, Governor Deal, Roy Barnes, uh, and Governor Kemp have all come forward and said they support the speaker, that they're not, uh, they don't think this is reason for him to consider stepping down or for the legislature to consider quitting him out of the job. And Stacey Abrams, let's put up a, a quote that Stacey Abrams gave about this because um, we all wait to see what she says about virtually everything. Do we have the Stacey Abrams quote? Well, uh, we don't have it at this second, but Abrams essentially, here we go. In the state of Georgia, our lawmakers are called upon to not only serve as legislators, but to also make a living. And there have been rules put in place to ease how that occurs. I would leave it to Speaker Ralston to determine if he's meeting his obligations, both as an attorney and as a legislator. But that is his responsibility and obligation. What do you make about that uh, comment? Well, um, you know, we talked about this uh, last week on this show, and I think part of the issue is is that as a legislator, Abrams is probably remembering, you know, her own challenges and being able to do her her pay job and her and also her legislative duties. Um, and so you don't want to sort of remove that flexibility by sort of saying that you can't do that. But on the other hand, there does look like there has been an abuse of this particular privilege in Speaker Ralston's case. And if he has, uh, uh, you know, uh, members of his party who are now sponsoring resolutions to uh, try to get him removed from positions of leadership then perhaps what they're trying to do and I think it's a question whether or not they have the leverage to do it is um, force him to make a decision and the outcome of this may not be that he steps down as speaker but that he curtails some of his legal responsibilities hires additional help is forced to take on second chair so that his private legal business actually kind of continues even when he has to be absent because of his legislative duties yeah, um and Caesar, it, it, given all of that, what do you think it says that Abrams, uh, she could be in a position where she could criticize uh, the speaker. Uh, you know, she, she could make a case yeah. against him for partisan political reasons, yeah. but she's being very cautious. I think she, she exercised uh, restraint. Uh, in making her comment. I think she also probably utilized a little bit or felt a little empathy, as as Andra indicated. I mean, you know, when I was on the city council, I also practiced law, and both of those things were full-time. And so even I have a level of empathy for, the, for uh, what uh, the speaker uh, probably has experienced. But I think it's very important uh, to decipher between one solution versus another solution. I think the first solution could be to call for his resignation, he stepped down, but is that really the solution that, that we want uh, as a state? Uh, the other solution could be what Andres has suggested, is that he kind of adjust his schedule as a lawyer and, and identify resources, but also I think it's important for the legislature, if they're going to spend some time passing bills, uh, to look at the rule itself. Uh, and the rules that, that surround this decide whether or not they should change he, those rules. Heath, I want to give you a chance to say what you want, but I, I do think it's important to start by pointing out that uh, these are Republicans who have signed on to this resolution. This isn't a Democratic uh, move. No, that's right. Anytime you're the Speaker of the House, though, you've made enemies as a Speaker of the House, even within your own party. 
So a couple of the names that Jim mentioned are folks who are traditional outsiders. They like to lob bombs in. I don't know David Clark as well, but he does have a, a ambition of doing other things. And so I think that's important to uh, focus on. I, I think that what's really critical here is a couple of things. Number one, Nathan Deal and Roy Barnes, Republican and Democrat, who've known David Ralston as a lawyer and as a speaker uh, came to his defense and understand the travails of being a real leader in the legislature and trying to have a small town legal practice. That's very different than a practice in Atlanta, Georgia. And number two, I do think Stacey Abrams got beat up herself about what she was doing in the private sector mm -hmm. while yes, she was in the house. And she has some sympathy, but more importantly, if you'll notice, she knows David Ralston personally. He did not go after her personally during this last campaign because they have a good professional relationship. And I think she's saying, wait a second, there's got to be more here than what we're reading so far before she's willing to pass political judgment and others. And look, as a lawyer, it's not easy to defend lawyers. I get that uh, out there, but it is very difficult to do what they're doing. Most of what I've read about is part of the slowness of the judicial process combined with the guy being the Speaker of the House. But he is going to have to deal with this politically. I don't think the insurgency goes anywhere beyond where it is because he's too well thought of within the bar community and within the, the legislature. Well, uh, th three points. Uh, number one, on the on the speed of the judicial processes, uh, the, 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 one of the big problems with this story is that he's got clients who's saying that he went, came to them saying, this is what I, I can delay your right. trial. Yeah, because, we shouldn't gloss over this. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, two other things. Uh, number one, Stacey Abrams, it, it seems to me, has sent a very, very uh, interesting signal to her fellow Democrats. She's brushed him back. That this is, this is, this is a, this is a Republican affair. Let them, yeah. let, let them fight it out. We'll stay out of it this time. And, and on David, David Clark, he's, he's, again, he's, he's trying to, to, he's about to enter a Republican race for the seventh congressional district, he was going to be faced with this question anyway. He was going to be saddled with it in a, in a, in a, in a Republican primary. And it, it, it makes sense that he, he's, he's, he wants to get out in front of it. This is the same guy who I think during the last session, he, he really took after uh, Casey Cagle for holding up uh, medicinal, medicinal marijuana uh, legislation. Uh, and and uh, so he's 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 already got a reputation as as you know as a as a as as somebody who's not afraid to to, to stand up to to uh, power. But one thing I I would add to that you, you made me think about it when you mentioned that this is a brushback from Stacey Abrams uh, and really a message to Democrats to let the Republicans handle this. I think also in her statement she was actually suggesting to Ralston you be the solution for this issue as well, and I think mm -hmm. that's something we shouldn't. Uh, forget that he uh, can actually be a part of this. I'm sorry, um, Andra. We had uh, uh, Stephen Fowler, who's reporting on the uh, legislature for GPB Radio, uh, sends us this mm -hmm. uh, from Ralston. Ralston says, "You know, I don't follow what's been introduced or not until it comes to my desk. I'm just very grateful for the expressions of support yesterday from Governor Kemp, Governor Deal, Governor Barnes, and etc." So, uh, and and uh, Fowler says, "You're not worried?" And he said, "No, I'm worried about getting home, having a good weekend." And then getting back down here. Well, the notion that the Speaker of the House is not paying attention <laughs> to measures until they come to his desk uh, sort of begs uh, credulity, but he's trying to 
downplay it, obviously, as much as possible. I mean, I think getting to Jim's point, I think the issue is is that whether or not these uh, lobs are actually serious lobs, and I think at this point he doesn't see it as that. I think he rec recognizes that if Democrats are at, you know, best standing down and not actually entering into the fray because strategically they would want somebody like Ralston in that speaker's chair yeah. if it's not somebody from their own party, I think is actually something that's really important that he's basically saying, yeah, I heard it, but I, I'm not necessarily taking this seriously. Yeah. And don't discount the fact that with a new governor and a new lieutenant governor, he's the most experienced leader in the legislature and he has a history of working with some of the Democrats mm -hmm. here. So he may be the calming influence I, over this session. I, I think that, Heath, you just hit on a really important point here. Uh, you've got a new governor in office. You've got a new lieutenant governor. You've got a number of new legislators in both bodies. Jim, it strikes me in some ways that David Ralston is the rock of stability, and both Republicans and Democrats see that, which is still not to dismiss what the reporting that your folks did suggesting he may be manipulating the system to help defendants who have accusations of serious crimes against them minimize their jeopardy and it's and it's a it's a it's a really interesting dilemma i mean on one hand you've got a moral argument that that david clark is making over here but on the other hand, you have a governmental stability yeah. argument over yeah. here because that's what that's what Ralston represents at this point. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It, it strikes me there's a parallel between Ralston in this moment, not that she has, was facing any kind of accusations, but we, we see a similar kind of thing with Nancy Pelosi uh, when there were people who were questioning whether she should be elected speaker or not. And one of the arguments was, are you kidding? With all the new people that are coming into the House of Representatives with the fight the Democrats are waging against Trump, we need somebody who knows what's going on or we're going to be in big trouble. Well, I think that's probably as far as the analogy goes. I yeah, mean, I think it, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, Nancy Pelosi didn't have sort of these serious ethical exactly. allegations. Exactly. I mean, ones that I think, and I take your point, Heath, that it's hard to find lawyers, um, you know, outside of Metro Atlanta, but it's is a nice inducement to pay somebody like an associate really, really well to kind of come and join the law firm. I mean, if not only that, it's just for firm planning purposes. He's going to retire at some point, so you do want to hand it over to somebody and groom them. Yeah. Caesar, uh, go well. Yeah, well, go ahead. Make your point. Well, I, you know, I, listening to you quote Speaker Walt Ralston's statement makes me think that he may be taking this a little too lightly. And part of me, I'm, I, you know, I kind of have a little conspiracy theorist in me a little bit. And I think he's probably making his his statements based upon what he has assessed as just only a political threat, which is not a threat. Uh, because I think some of this, if you really talk to folks and, you know, they'll tell you that some of this attack is, you know, coming from a certain sector, as you alluded to, within the right. Republican Party. And they're always after him because they don't like some of the positions he's taken. But I think he should also take into account that there are some legal and ethical issues out here that could get legs if the, if the media continues to stay on well, top if, of that. Well, if, if the state barring gets yes. involved. Yes, absolutely. And then, of course, there's the court of public opinion. If it continues to get just hammered in the media, this could be a problem for him. So I think he needs to take Stacey Abrams' advice and, and kind of be the master of his own fate and be a part of the solution. With well, and, he, he, you know, and he's been attacked for the last four or five years mm -hmm. by political adversaries up in North Georgia, and they've used bar complaints uh, falsely, and they, he's won those. Uh, and so he, there's a little bit of he's gotten some tougher skin about that, but you have to be careful, right? Be, mm -hmm. Before we change the subject, one last layer that we should add to this, Jim. Your colleagues, uh, Johnny Edwards and Chris Joyner, filed an update to this story. 
um, today, uh, Friday, when we're uh, doing the show live on the radio and recording for Friday night and Sunday, um, they uh, point out that until 2006, for 100 years, state statute allowed a lawyer who was in the legislature to delay court cases while they were in session and for three weeks after the session. In 2006, the Senate and House had different versions of a similar bill, which expanded the amount of time and, and gave much more leeway to the uh, legislators who were attorneys to keep delaying cases. And Ralston, your uh, colleagues point out, was on the conference committee and helped draft the language and that it was, and put it was that some, in place. It was also some surprise language that wasn't in either bill yeah. when it went into conference. Yeah. So it kind of came out, and there was a little, little, uh, uh, a little Easter egg there. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, we'll see uh, what happens. Uh, but just to put a, a, a period on this, uh, Heath Garrett says this isn't going to. Ralston will obviously not face a serious challenge. Is what he says. Is he right? Oh, I, I, absolutely. Okay. I think, yeah. Now, now he may have a tougher primary than he than, than he wants uh, in twenty twenty. Uh, and 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 so it would be uh, it would behoove him to to make this go away okay. as quickly as he can. And some of this is about jockeying for who the next speaker is in a few years, whether that's two, four, six years from now, mm -hmm. could be. It's funny. This reminds me that um, David Ralston, back when Glenn Richardson was Speaker of the House and kind of threw everything into chaos in the way he led the uh, House, Ralston challenged Glenn Richardson. And got slaughtered the first time he tried to take the speakership away from him. Uh, but uh, within the next couple of years, Richardson had gotten himself into so much trouble, uh, problems. He said he tried to commit suicide. He said we learned that he'd had a long-term affair with a lobbyist. Yeah, his ex-wife uh, provided the airline tickets, uh, the receipts. And, and Ralston right. ends up as Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. Interesting how politics works. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, let's move on before we get to our first break. Uh, Jim, again, let me start with you. Uh, Brian Kemp now has his Patience First Act, mm -hmm. which we know he wants to go after waivers that would help subsidize the cost of purchasing mm -hmm. insurance on the uh, Obamacare exchanges. We also know that he's looking at some kind of expansion of Medicaid, although he's being a little... He's, he's trying to be as coy for yeah. as long as he can. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he just got some big support from some very important uh, rural organizations. And, uh, and, and, and urban, uh, nonprofit hospitals. Yeah, which nonprofit, which you're include, right. Which include you're Grady right. Memorial. Thank you. Yeah, okay? that's and, right. And that's what makes it, that, that's what makes it so important. You've, you've had, of course, uh, as soon as he put this bill out, you had uh, Democrats in the Senate and, and the House object, saying that nothing more than a full expansion of Medicaid would satisfy them. Uh, that's a political argument aimed at 2020. What you have with the hospitals is a is a very practical logistical decision that says I want to be at this table while this discussion happens over the next 18 months and so so they've endorsed his his version yeah that makes sense Andre you can't afford if you are any of these nonprofit hospitals to start criticizing a plan that hasn't even been f fully fleshed out yet you want to be a part of this and, and not only that 
this may not be the end of the discussion, right? And so I think it makes sense for people to be part of the incremental debate. And then once you've achieved that goal, then you can have the conversation about whether or not we can further this. You know, um, when I was thinking about this particular question, I thought about the discussions uh, that I heard at Emory um, you know, um, as Obamacare was being passed. And I remember a big faculty meeting where the then President Jim Wagner came and talked about the fact that if Georgia wasn't going to take Medicaid expansion, then we could expect that Emory was going to have to absorb some of the cost yeah. of indigent care. Yeah. And that affects everybody. So even though, you know, there's the hospital, like there's the university. And so the money eventually affects everybody. And so if a lot of money is being used to absorb uh, care uh, for people who can't afford to pay, then that could have an impact on other things as well. And so of course, it is in nonprofit hospitals' best interest to try to get somebody to offset the cost of the care that they're going to be responsible for. And if they could get this one step, that's great. And then what I suspect is that once that happens, there will probably be future discussions about whether or not we can go further with that. Um, Grady CEO John Halpert was quoted as saying, passing Senate Bill 106 would be a positive step toward improving our health care delivery system and increasing access to care for those who need it. Most. I think that these CEOs of these nonprofit hospitals actually see an opportunity, right? The, I get that the Medicare for all or all Medicare is the easier, simpler, clearer political message. As a Republican, mm -hmm. I know that it works at the end of the day. But these CEOs, Medicare for all works? Well, no. The, 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 Medicaid it's, expansion. It's, politically, it works, right? Okay. Politically, it works and that it's popular, it's simple, it fits into a bumper ah, sticker, okay. those kind of things. <laughs> However, from a policy standpoint, these CEOs would sit down and tell you, Medicare and Medicaid are broken systems. What if we go for a waiver that actually improves all the systems? And I think they see an opportunity to do some experimentation with these two waivers. Georgia could be at the front end if the CEOs of these health systems are at the table, and it's not just the elected officials who don't know health care. And so I think it's both. Yes, they've got to take something is better than nothing. But I do think that Grady, I think that Wellstar Emory is a leading health care policy organization in the world. They ought to be sitting at the table saying, what if we did Medicare Georgia version that's better well, than what well, we as, as a matter have. of fact, as a matter of right. fact, there is a there is a a, a a scenario where Grady serves as that model. And I was I was wondering if, if Caesar, yeah. how, how familiar you uh, as a, as council president, you you uh, became with uh, with uh, Grady's kind of experiments in that area. No, not really so much. But I think you know if if looking at this as a Democrat. You know, I choose to kind of say, okay, this is incrementalism at its best, and I, I think it's smart for us to say, let's see where this goes, number one. Also, we also heard, you know, Governor Kemp talk about kind of some of the market-based solutions for health care. So it appears he's going to really approach this from a couple of different angles and kind of see, he's going to see what works. So I just think to, to get on the far extreme and say, if you don't do complete expansion, then don't do anything, that's crazy to me. Um, I thought Galloway's, the, 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 the word that sticks out in the first thing he said about this was Kemp is being coy about Medicaid expansion. <laughs> well, we have no idea how, how much. And he seemed, I said the other day that it's like he's getting into a really into a bath with really hot water and lowering himself in very gently. We just don't know how far he's going to end up uh, going. Well, if you think about it from a from a from a Democrat perspective. I mean, you know, you, you're looking at kind of the changing dynamic in the state of Georgia. 
and that the next governor's race may even be competitive in terms of uh, Democrats. And so if you, if you have a Republican governor that's taking these kinds of steps right now by way of waivers and showing a level of receptiveness to expanding health care in Georgia, then you take that and run, uh, knowing that the future may be even brighter. I mean, I think it's two things. I think one part of this is, uh, do you allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good here? Exactly. So it's given, yeah. the, given the environment. But also there is this question of, since health care was such an important issue in the 2018 election, and because there is this idea that Georgia left money on the table by refusing Medicaid expansion mm -hmm. outright, of course Governor Kemp is going to have to dip his toe in. He's just trying to figure out the right way to do it optically. Yeah, for um, both his conservative base and for those who right. wanted to see more happen. Jim, you get the last word. You have to remember the, the, the tightrope that Brian Kemp is uh, running because yeah. he, is, he, he was elected uh, with the votes of rural Georgia and rural Georgia is in desperate need of health care, they, but they but they they don't want anything that has to do, that that can be uh, named Obamacare. Yeah, yeah. Um, They've been told they don't. <laughs> I, I do want to mention one final word, uh, Jim, and we don't have to dwell on it. But as an example of what's happening in in rural parts of the state with healthcare facilities, we're now learning that the rehabilitation facility that Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, founded uh, near Warm Springs uh, when he went down there to deal with his polio. Uh, this historic facility is in danger of shutting yeah, down. Yeah, Roosevelt Warm Springs Rehabilitation Hospital. Yeah, uh, and and it's uh, it's it's uh, got a problem. There are maybe half a million dollars in dispute on Medicare on bills, Medicare. and so they have frozen Medicare yeah. contributions yeah. to that place. Yeah, that would be. It's been an incredible legacy that Roosevelt left in this state. So we'll watch how that uh, develops. All right. So I'm already way behind on the topics we want to get to today. Why don't we get a break out of the way? And when we come back, a couple of really interesting developments in terms of legislation being introduced in the House. A hate crimes bill. Why is that significant? We'll discuss it in a minute. And is it time for horse racing in Georgia? This is Political Rewind. <laughs> Are you thinking of getting rid of your old car, truck, or RV? GPB's vehicle donation program is here to help. Donating has never been easier. We'll take care of everything, including free pickup of your vehicle. Just go to gpb.org slash cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR. That's 877-472-1227. And thanks so much. My name is Chuck Reese. I'm the editor of an online magazine called The Bitter Southerner. I've seen decades of misconceptions about the South from the Beverly Hillbillies on down. But in my new podcast with GPB, we're going to challenge those stereotypes and paint a very different picture of the American South. Join me for the Bitter Southerner podcast. Details are at bittersouthern.com. I think it was back in around 2000, Jim Galloway, that the Georgia legislature passed and the governor at the time signed into law a hate crimes law that the state Supreme Court overturned saying it's too vague. You haven't listed who is being protected by this law. And ever since that law was overturned, there have been efforts made, and I have to say, as former director of the Anti-Defamation League in the Southeast, I was part of them, to get a new hate crimes law passed, and it just has not happened, leaving Georgia as one of only five states in the country with no hate crimes law. 
And now we have a new bill. Chuck Efstration, a Republican, has introduced a hate crimes bill. Yes, uh, and the key elements here is is number one, it, it includes sexual orientation, yeah. which is a which is a which is has been the sticking point. Always the sticking point. And the fact that Chuck Efstration uh, is a former former uh, assistant uh, DA in Gwinnett County. Uh, and the key there is Gwinnett County. Mm -hmm. He is he is in a very dangerous slot right now. He's uh, in 2020. He could lose that seat. This is this is a bill that uh, that he uh, that that clearly he thinks might might help him. Heath, uh, Jim makes an important point. Um, he does. It th the legislature has been willing to look at hate crimes bills that would cover religion, would cover race. The minute you mention sexual orientation or gender, right. the Republicans primarily have said no because they wanted in no way did they want to somehow uh, uh, put into law something that even uh, acknowledged the, the fact that there are gays, lesbians and uh, people who are, have gender uh, uh, differences uh, being protected. I, I do think that's the most nefarious way of viewing it. I'm sure there were some Republicans in the past who may have viewed it that way. Now, there are actually a couple of legitimate uh, arguments that, that, that were problematic for hate crime legislation in every state and still are today. One is the First Amendment, right, which is why the state Supreme Court struck down the 2000 version. Well, I'm not sure that I, I think we could argue about that. They said there were no enumerated classes in that law, right. and because which, of that, they felt it was the, too vague. It's a combination of, I don't want to get too legalistic or constitutional, but the First Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause, but you had to be in certain protected classes in order to, to receive that protection, and, and there is this question of how do we become thought police. So there are, there are the ACL and ultra-conservatives who defend the First Amendment have some legitimate philosophical concerns with every crime's hate crime, right? Because you're committing physical violence against somebody. But in the political context and in policy, almost nobody today is against hate crime legislation. The question is, how do you tailor it properly and what groups? And I think that the Republican primary has moved on to the point where sexual orientation and gender aren't there. The only questions now are, how do you tailor this so that it doesn't become something more than criminal prosecution and people start attacking well, speech or under, other things? Under one of the other issues uh, that has stood in the way of this, is that this becomes an enhanced, this is an enhancement. If you're convicted of a crime, there's then another phase of a trial in which a determination is made that it's a hate crime. And there are those who have been opposed that sort of two-step process. But what's your take on this whole issue? Um, one, I mean, I think it's interesting that we're having this discussion this week when hate crimes have been in the news. And yeah. I think we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that. But I think it's really important that despite the fact that we've had this now disputed hate crime allegation kind of you know happened this week that we still do this because regardless of what you think um, about sexual orientation um, the reality of it is is that people do get targeted for their gender identity and their sexual orientation and you can think it's wrong and simultaneously think that people have a right to be people and to live um, without harm um, and as we see these things happening and as we have seen the Justice Department this week release um, data on hate crimes that suggest that it is going up in this country it is really important important for us to acknowledge that this is the fact. I think it's also 
really important to put this in the context of things that have happened in the past few years. So not just the rise in hate crimes in the last few years, something that I would argue has been egged on by the White House, but also that we have seen things like Charleston happen, where you want to actually show societal disapproval for something that clearly is tied to hate. So that goes beyond murder um, and goes beyond capital murder because multiple people are being killed in a certain instance, but because this is being done for hate to show that we as a society disapprove of this. And, and when and states do not have this at their at their vantage point, and especially if a case doesn't rise to the level of having like a federal conviction, as happened in Charleston, the state wants to be able to show their disapproval. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, I say that this is a good thing. Caesar, I think it's interesting that abstration is introduced. This. I will say that during, again, the years that I got out of broadcasting to work in the civil rights uh, organization I did, there were Republicans who championed hate crimes. Uh, uh, Joe Wilkerson, fr who mm -hmm. was right up there in the northern part of Atlanta, was, was one of them, but they never went anywhere. I think it remains to be seen whether this bill gets very far at this point anyway. Well, I want to come to that, but I want to just agree with everything that Andra said. And I, I want to push back a little bit against my my law school classmate. He finished higher in the class than I did, so <laughs> <laughs> take that into consideration as I say this. But with respect to hate crimes law, uh, the First Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment will always be kind of a pushback against any abuse of that law. I think that's uh, right. You follow me? That's the answer well, to the question. Those, right? I think yeah. that's the answer yeah. to so it. So I agree the, with so you. So I think passing the law is important. Uh, uh, man, and I think man, the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment will always be there to make sure that we don't abuse that law. You know, uh, and so and I want to make clear I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. That's the pushback. <clears throat> but I, I think the question is, 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 is does Efstration uh, want to actually pass it or does he want to say he fought for it? Uh, given where he is in, in Gwinnett County. I think how it moves through the, through the legislature will give us some indication. A couple, a couple things, Bill. Uh, number one, I think the, the you were looking for Wendell Willard, who had backed uh, uh, legislation. He did. On, on, yeah. on, on, on sexual yeah. orientation. He was a Republican. He was one of them. There were a couple yes, of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but on this... Uh, now I'm trying to figure out where I was going to go here. <laughs> well, well, well let me, the Republican side. Oh, oh here, here, here we go. Here we go. Let me right. pick up my train of thought. If uh, th th why this piece of legislation is important is let's let's I'm, I'm going to uh, take Mr. Frustration at his word, say he's sincere and he wants to get it passed. Mm. If you can pass this, if you can pass a hate crimes uh, a bill with sexual orientation in it, then possibly you can also pass a civil rights law in yeah. Georgia yeah. with sexual orientation in it and that would defang the religious liberty fight yeah, yeah. well that's a that's 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 a long it's a, it's long, a long view jump, it's a long isn't view. it Andra? yeah no, i mean and I, and I would suspect that if this were to pass there would still be a longer protracted fight about redefining civil rights laws in the yeah. state um and it yeah. might actually end up being something where the federal courts would have to kind of come in and sort of redefine who's a protected class and who isn't yeah well this is a case where good policy it ends up being good politics, particularly for not just Chuck administration, but for the Republican Party, as they, as we try to you know show that we're a much broader version than the narrative that my Democratic friends have tried to paint all Republicans as, right? And there are always there are bad examples in both parties on both sides. But I think Chuck's making a noble effort here. Uh, Politics is the driver of good policy sometimes, but I do think that the Repu his Republican colleagues ought to look at this seriously, and I think it's got a better chance than we might otherwise right. think, and they ought to take it let's, seriously. Let's, let's move on to another issue that has been discussed in the legislature. I think when I got here in 1983, they were already talking about this, and there's a new bill. This time it's uh, 
who is it introduced the horse racing bill? Brandon, Brandon Beach? Beach. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, Caesar, Brandon Beach <laughs> wants to. Uh, he believes that we are missing a huge chunk of money in this state by not legalizing horse racing. And he's introduced a bill that'll do two things. Number one, it would give voters of the state an opportunity to decide whether they want horse racing. And of course, paramutual wagering. And two, he'd want, he wants to set up a, an authority that would decide on three locations in the state that could build horse parks. Yes, yeah, so I think horse tracks. that has some uh, a, a good bit of uh, resemblance to some of the gambling legislation that's come recently. And, <laughs> but, and he, but he has separated it from any casino. Yes, no Abs casino. Abs and there will no be casino. none of that kind of, you know, no slots no in racino, these horse races. No racino. Is that how you say it? Racino. Racino. Yeah. No yeah, racino exactly. type of regime <laughs> will be set up. Uh, I think he makes a, a, a good point that, you know, we're, we're losing all the horses as they go from Florida to Kentucky. And I think... Uh, and there's an opportunity there. I still think, honestly, this is really about kind of taking this step towards casino gambling in the state of Georgia. I think Brandon Beach has a lot of credibility within the state. Quite frankly, he's got some other political aspirations, of course. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's an announcement. He's already declared. He's running for that sixth district. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but beyond the, 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 the comment, I forgot who made the comment that, hey, Georgians have already uh, agreed to a majority you know, numbers to gambling through the lottery. I think if you look at polling, more recent polling, I think most Georgians generally, you know, are in favor of gambling. So I think this is the first step. And, and if I'm not mistaken, he is he has kind of refashioned this bill. I think it's got a, a title that reflects oh. that it's a rural it's jobs It's a rural bill. economic development <laughs> yeah. measure. Yeah. There's definitely an agricultural and agrarian component to it. Well, there is. <laughs> but it's true. He's talking about horse farms. Oh, He's yeah. talking about farms yeah. that are, are uh, uh, producing hay to sell to the racer. I mean, there is, in fact, an economic... Uh, component to this to some extent. Yeah, but I'm always cautious about using these types of things to think that they're going to be these automatic magic bullets and that they're going to be these huge drivers of economic development. Yeah. So first, from like a, a gambling standpoint, when there were only a few places where you could gamble in the United States, right, they were big cash cows for the places that had them. Now that they're everywhere, right, it's just not the same. Like, so, you know, you've just messed the, the supply curve up. And so, yeah, another person gets in. I'm just not sure that people are going to get the payout. Second, in terms of what a long-term fix is to try to make sure that we provide jobs jobs for people in rural areas, to provide jobs for people who don't have college degrees, right? I, I think it's still a short-term solution to this, yeah. and it's not actually helping people think long-term about what the, the economy of the 21st and the 22nd century are going to look like. I don't think there's any question that what this is about is people wanting to be able to, be do, to, to bet on horses in this state. It, if you want to go to a racetrack, right. you want to see horse racing, you got to drive a long way. Uh, to get there, so and that's Miami, really at the Miami basis. or, or Keeneland, Keeneland in Kentucky or, or Baltimore. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Well, yeah. and remember, we do have a huge, a great. Uh, the agricultural industry is the number one industry still in the state of Georgia economically. We have a lot of horse interests out there that aren't in the horse racing directly, uh, but we also have a lot of business interests in Atlanta, Georgia, in particular, that are invested in horse racing in other states. And so, I do think the state's matured on this. I've seen a little polling data on this. 
Obviously, the lottery's very popular. Horse racing is more popular than casino gambling. Uh, the population is kind of maturing on this issue. Uh, so, and Brandon is, is a powerful force on this. I wouldn't bet against him on it, mm -hmm. no pun intended, or maybe <laughs> pun intended. But at the same point in time, I do think there are folks who are saying, wait, does Georgia really need this? And that's going to be the counter argument. It's not a silver bullet. But it, it it does touch a lot of different sectors of Georgia's economy. I, I'm gonna I gotta go to a break. But uh, uh, Jim uh, Jeff Mullis, who's the chairman of the Senate Rules Committee, an important position, uh, was quoted as saying, "This is all about jobs because gambling is already legal in Georgia." But you know, this bill has never ever been able to pass the legislature. Where do we stand? It's just a kind of a, a, a it, it could be just another thud against a brick wall, yeah. but eventually those thuds add up. Yeah. And and someday someday something like this will pass. All right. Um, we got to get to a break. I want to show you one quick thing if you're watching uh, the TV version of the show. If you're not, I'll read it to you. Um, you know that there is, we're, we've looked at uh, the fact that right now we've got uh, uh, the legislature is on the verge of uh, choosing new voting machines. And they're looking at some reform in the way in which we handle our votes here. One of the concerns a lot of people have is exact match. B. Wynn was on the committee, uh, and so is Renita Shannon. They're on the state and local government committee that looked at these issues, and they pointed out this, and it relates to exact match. They are listed with their names spelled incorrectly. That's not how you spell win. It's close, but not close enough. And Renita spells her name with another E in it. They point out they would have not probably been allowed to vote because there is not an exact match. It's just an interesting side note I, to the I, whole I've thing. Often, I've often decided <laughs> that the way to solve this exact match problem yeah. is to apply it to concealed carry permits. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take another break. We'll Touché. be right back. <laughs> I'm Ira Flato. As a young graduate student, Priya Natarajan made a prediction about the behavior of black holes. Now, 20 years later, she's been proven right. We'll let her gloat and explain. We'll also talk about another prediction yet to come true. A storm so strong it could make a lake out of California's Central Valley. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Today at 3 on GPB. People in the U.S. have a history of dismissing racist, homophobic, or sexual violence. Recently, there have been calls to believe people who say they are victims. It appears Empire actor Jussie Smollett may have been taking advantage of that impulse. It's not necessarily that you don't believe that this is the truth. You don't even want to see the truth. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. You know, Jim, if you're a Republican thinking you may want to run for Rob Woodall's 7th District seat since he's now decided to retire, you might be really irritated that the Republican leadership of the state Senate decided to cut Renee Enterman's legs out from under her to an extent by uh, demoting her in terms of her Senate leadership position, because now Enterman is thinking she's going to run for that 7th District seat. Yeah, basically you set her free. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
<laughs> and she is uh, she right now uh, at this moment she's I think she's the only female Republican who's giving a close look, uh, look at this right yeah she said I, she told I think a reporter from your place that uh, she's just got to talk her husband into it <laughs> and and she and wants she's to got do that it. little exploratory thingy that she's doing yeah I, but you know what I mean Unterman going it look she is a uh, she's been a controversial character at the Capitol. She has strong opinions. She voices them freely. Uh, but going into this race, she's pr probably the best-known Republican candidate, and she won't have a clear field, but she's got to be thought of as close to the front-runner. I mean, I think she's somebody to take seriously. She'd come in with high name recognition. Um, everybody recognizes that the record number of women who are in Congress now are almost all Democrats and that there are very few Republican women and that Republicans have to catch up. So that would certainly give her an advantage, and I think the party would actually probably look very favorably on that. I think the bigger question here, regardless of who ends up winning the Republican nomination is whether or not that's too little too late for that particular district. Mm -hmm. And so one of the lessons of 2018 was not just the, the Democratic wave and that there was a lot of dissatisfaction about uh, Donald Trump, but part of the reason why that district is competitive is because it has changed demographically. Um, and so it's not just changed racially demographically, that's also highly correlated with party. And so Democrats, um, if they put forward another strong candidate like a Carolyn Boudreaux, like they're, they're going to be in position to be really, really competitive. And that doesn't mean that Renee Unterman wouldn't be a qualified nominee, but it just may be that the district's demographics have changed in front of her, and she's just a little too late for the party. Couple things. Uh, number one, Unterman uh, uh, has is she's been mayor of Loganville. Yeah. Uh, she has been a, a Gwinnett County commissioner, so she's been on the ballot quite a few times and has that experience. But let me let me point to something to just to emphasize uh, something you were saying here, and that is the. the, the the, the Georgia Democratic Party is doing very uh, something very, very smart. They are jumping with both feet into this Gwinnett County Marta vote. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they are, they are, they are whole, uh, doing a full-scale campaign, uh, building email lists. They're building uh, networks. And all of that is going to be turned around in 2020. 2020. That's good. Heath, it's can, all about the data, right? Heath, I don't mm -hmm. know the I don't, I don't I don't know the numbers. I haven't crunched them. Yeah, can can uh, based on what Andra says, um, the, uh, Unterman, can you win the seventh district with just Gwinnett County? Do you have to, is Forsyth a no, big no, enough no. force? It, it, you've got a, you've got it's now a combination, right? There are two different elections. There's the Republican primary, yeah. which will be dominated by Forsyth County, right. and the more western portions of that got district. You. And then there's the general election, which will be dominated slightly by more of Gwinnett County okay. on this. Uh, and just slightly disagree with the, the professor. Uh, the the reason why it looks like it's so easy for Democrats to take it is because. Republicans underperformed the presidential ballot in 2018, while Stacey Abrams and Democrats overperformed Hillary Clinton. And you and think with Trump back on the, on the ballot, and it'll so change that? If you take the combination of Donald Trump and the right Republican who can appeal to independent voters, uh, particularly highly educated professionals who are commuting back and forth at the end of the day, I think a Republican can actually exceed Rob Woodall's percentage uh, by a couple well, of points. Well, Caesar, I think in the right environment. What he's mm -hmm. just said right is candidate. another thing that accrues to Unterman's favor. She has devoted herself to working on health care issues mm -hmm. at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. That's an issue that can cut across party lines in a heartbeat. I, I think by the time we get to the election in 2020, I think the the, the area, Gwinnett County, that district will be even more, uh, you know, even so to speak between Democrats and Republicans. It makes me think about that 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 thing from Star Wars where 
Princess Leia said, you know, help us, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only, our hope, our only hope. And it repeats it over and over again. She may be the only, Renee Unterman may be the only Republican that can be competitive in that race in 2020. Wow. And yet it's still going to be hard for a woman to escape a Georgia Republican primary. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's... I think the other thing about Heath is that I don't, that's, while I agree with you that Donald Trump back on the ballot in 2020, you know, does sort of present different challenges than 2018 did. Um, but on the other hand, the demographic changes that we see happening in the most populous part of that district are oh. continuing. Yeah. And so it, they, they just can't stop it. So if it's not 2020, then eventually there's going to come a point where Gwinnett's diversity, one, could actually seep into oh, Forsyth yeah. County. And then also where, you know, where you're just going to see so many Democrats that it's just going to be hard for any Republican, even somebody with Unterman's credentials, yeah. to be able well, to Well, one of the beauties about the 7th... I'm sorry. One of the beauties about the 7th District race is it's going to keep political rewind in business for another couple of years. And We're the 6th district. Yeah, district. district. And the 6th District, too. Okay, uh, real quick... Um, Ivanka Trump was in uh, Metro Atlanta. She was up at a UPS training facility in, in Gwinnett County. Another example of why all of a sudden that 7th District has become battleground territory. Uh, uh, the governor was with her. And uh, it's most likely that Kemp, when he was with her, said, we have got to have emergency relief money for the farmers of South Georgia. It was cut out of the continuing resolution compromise on uh, some spending uh, for the wall. Kemp has written a letter. He's had a phone call yeah, with President dad too. Yeah. Trump. <laughs> and now we got Isaacson and, and uh, Purdue pushing for it as well. So real quick, it, this is going to pay off at some point, isn't it, Jim? You can't ignore Georgia right now if you're the White House. No, no. And you've got to remember that why this was uh, 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 pulled out of the, the compromise of uh, to avoid the shutdown. It was over Puerto, Puerto Rico, Rico. But there's also California and, and far west wildfire money yeah. that can't be ignored. So there's there's there there is a very large constituency here. They'll get to it. And, and Governor Kemp should be applauded for using every opportunity yeah. possible to yeah. advocate for mm -hmm. the citizens of this state, right? I mean, he's doing exactly what he should be doing. And I can tell you that go, both Senators Isaacson and Purdue have had separate personal conversations with the president directly about this this week, and there's cautious optimism that the Puerto Rico stuff is being set aside for the greater good of agricultural-oriented areas like South Georgia. Okay, I just wanted to make sure we got to that uh, before we are done with the show. Caesar, uh, you're a prominent Democrat in uh, the Atlanta area. You got a candidate for president yet? Have you picked somebody? <laughs> I have not yet. Amy Klobuchar, of course, is... Uh, I, I think she's probably already in uh, Atlanta. She's got a fundraiser at Gordon and Patty That's Giffen's right. house right. later today. Yes. Uh, Gordon yes. Giffen being on former... Friday, yeah, right? Yes. 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 Uh, this yes. is Friday again. Are you, are you, are you, uh, are, are you going? You going? I, I'm, I've gotten an invitation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I may go. We'll see. <laughs> so, Andre, what's interesting about this is there was this little flap earlier in the week that Klobuchar was being hosted by old guard Democrats here. Gordon Giffen, who was closely uh, tied, of course, with uh, President Clinton. He was his ambassador to Canada. Roy Barnes, I, uh, Buddy Darden set, told us on the show the other day he would be there. And uh, the Abrams folks were huffy at first, saying, he, she, you know, Klobuchar should be looking to the next Georgia power centers. But in fact, she's meeting, it turns out, with Stacey Abrams uh, uh, today on Friday. And... Uh, and, and so it seems that vanished, but it 
it points out that duality still in Georgia Democratic politics. Well, I mean, and we shouldn't be surprised by that, nor should we be surprised that a centrist Democrat is hanging out with centrist Democrats in this state. I mean, you know, would Klobuchar... Klobuchar should meet with, with people like Stacey Abrams and should meet, uh, you know, with progressives in the Democratic Party. But, you know, she could also look at the 2018 election cycle and look at, look at the people who campaigned with Stacey Abrams and assume that if she's got good working relationships with Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, that chances are she's probably not going to get an endorsement or support <laughs> from somebody like Abrams. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, I think what's most important is when all of this gets decided, do all Georgia Democrats kind of align behind whoever the chosen nominee yeah, is or and, not? And, and I suspect that they and, will. And, and the, the yeah. other point I, I would throw in here is, is I don't have the statistics to back it up, but I'm presuming that old Democrats have more money than young Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> well, from a fundraising point of view, yeah. I think it's completely yeah. correct. You, you, we could imagine the crowd that's going to be at the Giffen House. Yeah, and, 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 and all that aside, you don't come to Georgia and not stop by the Giffens. You just don't. Really. Right. Why would you? Yeah. That's all right. Well, I just wanted to point out uh, that Klobuchar will be doing that. And she is meeting with both Stacey Abrams and President Carter. She has both of them on her calendar. And Keith, uh, you're a Republican, but you look across at the Democratic field. Uh, Klobuchar is, you know, she says the Midwest is her base, but she's a moderate enough Democrat. It'd be interesting to see how she does in a in an election here well the big the big story here is that right there are only a couple of centrist democrats right. in the primary at all right, right. and uh, they're getting knocked around for being such and so as a republican i look back and go uh, i'd like to encourage these democratic candidates to move as far to the left as they seem to be wanting to go <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way we'll uh, uh, speaking of democratic candidates andra bernie sanders just keeps on keeping on raised almost $6 million in the first 24 hours after making his video announcement. $27 was the average donation, and he got donations from every state. Man, if you're one of the other candidates, you've got to look at that and realize he's a powerhouse. Well, you don't discount it, but you also like don't bet the farm on that either. So just because that happens in you know in the in, in the first few hours of the campaign doesn't mean that he's going to be able to sustain that for a long period of time. There are uh, uh, acolytes of, of of Bernie Sanders, you know, who thought he got robbed in 2016, you know, who've probably been waiting to make that donation probably since <laughs> the primaries ended in 2016. So he's got great name recognition, unlike some of the other people. So it's not surprising that he would have such a strong All start. Right. We're running out of time. I don't want to miss an opportunity to say happy birthday yesterday to John Lewis. John Lewis celebrated his birthday and you, he went dancing. Uh, and and uh, if you're watching on the TV, you can see that Lewis still has moves. At 79 years old, he'll be at the... Uh, Oscars on Sunday night. He is going to present the movie uh, Green. What's it? Green, Green Book. Book. Green, Green Book. Book. Green Book. Right. Uh, so he'll be there. Happy birthday, John Lewis. Um, finally, Jim, tell us a little bit. You've got a good Sunday column. Just give us a preview so that people can look for it in the Sunday paper. It's the story of how Georgia lawmakers created a banking capital in Charlotte.
<laughs> I tell you what, yes, it's it's. I've had a chance to read it. Oh and, yeah, and I should say, Mr. Nygut is the inspiration yeah, for it. Yeah, but you remind us that decisions made by a legislature some 20 or more years ago can have consequences today, and that it was choices they made back then that are taking SunTrust to Charlotte. Uh, along with BB and it's, it's something to, it's something to think about as we consider this bill to give the state authority over the Atlanta airport. Right, right. Okay, <laughs> we'll get to that on another political rewind. Why rewind? Andre Gillespie, Heath Garrett, Caesar Mitchell, Jim Galloway. Thanks for being with us. Uh, you know what, Charlotte Nash, the chair of the Gwinnett County Commission, will be here on Monday's show. Jim will be here with me to talk to her about uh, MARTA expansion and a lot more. Heath Garrett will be here as well. So uh, we'll see you on Monday at 2. In the meantime, hope you have a great weekend.